We're going to be on page 982 in the Coffee House Bible, 982. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and 6. Uh, last week, thank you for bearing with me. I had pretty severe vertigo last week, and I was relying on this stool. I told you at the beginning of the sermon, I'm relying on God to get through this, and I'm relying on this stool. And then 30 seconds later, a huge bolt falls out of the stool, and I was like, I'm sorry, God. I was just relying on you. you you've got this. Uh, today, I'm going to try to stand if at any point I just sit down. It's, it's because my eardrum's ruptured, and it's still not like fully stable yet. So if I fall off, just come and tend to me. But I'm going to try to stand up and preach. Um, just kind of bear with me. Um, I am going to, I'm <laughs> going to try. Um, there, about 10 years ago, there was a, an eight-year-old girl named Ariana Schneeberg. Eight-year-old girl. Um, she was playing on the sidewalk just outside her home, just with a couple of friends. And then her friends were watching just as she just started screaming. And she was arching her back. Something had really happened to her, and they didn't know what. And then quickly they realized what it was. An arrow had gone through her body, and it had penetrated her lung and her spleen and her stomach and liver. She still carries the scars today. She survived this crazy event. You see, what was happening is that a neighbor was, a 16-year-old kid, was shooting a bow and arrow archery at a squirrel in his backyard. And he missed. And then it ricochets, and then it goes outside, and then it hits a girl who's just writhing in pain and immediately goes to surgery. Thankfully, they didn't, they didn't remove the arrow, so she didn't bleed out, and she survived, although she still carries the scars from the event, but also from the injury. We're in a, a series that's called For Freedom, and today we're going to really look at this idea of sin. And sin just basically means when you miss the mark. And I think sometimes Ariana's story is very much how we feel about sin. Sin is mostly a mistake. Sin is mostly an accident. It's something that if you really knew what I was intending to do, then you would kind of understand. It, it's not that I really did anything wrong. It's that I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's, it's more something that happens to me rather than something that happens by me. Does that make sense? And actually, there's a lot of good grounds for that, right? Um, man, I'm, I'm so grateful that the Lord has used the last two sermons to speak to, to many of you. It's, it's been amazing that in my weakness that he has done more good work. We, we've talked about sin as wounding, and sin is something that happens to us. We've talked about sin as entanglement, and in our curiosity, we go and search for things, and we don't really mean to end up in the places that we end up in, and we, sometimes we feel trapped and unable to get back. And we've said that there are ways to be held captive, and we didn't mean to get there, right? There are, that's true, that sin is often, I didn't mean for that to happen, I didn't mean for that to happen. It was an accident. And so sin can be like a, a captive who's oppressed by someone, like an invader who comes in and, and does something. But today, I need to draw attention to the reality that sin isn't always an accident. Sin isn't always a mistake. Sin isn't always something that happens to you. Sin is also something that we, with eyes wide open, choose. 
And when we choose, we carry the consequences. And so today, I, I want to draw attention to not just that we can be captives to sin, but that we can be prisoners to sin. This is a distinction I've, I've tried to play a couple of times in this series, right? That the captives is like when somebody invades the house and they come in and they do things that, that are wrong and, and just. But a prisoner is somebody who almost like invites them in. A prisoner is where we often have done something to end up in the place that we have gone, that we carry the consequences with us. I was reading an article in Christianity Today this month. Ted Olson, the author, he says, we see ourselves not as criminals and rebels, but as being off our game now and then. But actually, the story of sin in my life, and I think in your life, has to have both elements of being prisoners and captives to do full justice to what we have done and to what has been done to us. The reality is that sin has enormous consequences, that sin hurts you, and sin by you hurts the people around you, and that we are responsible for these things many times. So that's what we're going to dive in today, and we're going to use a, a case study. Um, there's, there's a lot. I'm just going to skip through it, okay? We're going to use three case studies from 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and 6. So if you've got a, a, a Bible or a phone, um, there's a lot of text available to you if you want it. We're going to look at three different issues that rise in this church that's called Corinth. Corinth is an ancient city um, that was kind of uh, very, kind of anything goes. Lots of freedom. And in their freedom, they are choosing sin over and over and over. And Paul deals with three different unique situations in this text. So we're going to look at how uh, grievous sin is. And what to do about it. And I think some of these reflections. He's going to talk about a church, but they're actually important not just for a church, but for each person. Each person in our own complicity and sin. Let's, let's just dive into this text. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, this is verse 1. Paul, he changes topics just a little bit at the beginning of 5. And he says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. He says, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. You see, he, he's saying, look, I get it. We live, in Rome. we live in a Roman colony. There's a lot that goes. So in, in the ancient Roman world, they had very kind of loose morals when it came to sex. And it's not like America where we, we kind of think everybody has loose morals when it comes to sex. Yeah, yes, I'm, I'm not disputing culturally. There's lots of things that sexually kind of go. But it is not to the degree with the openness and kind of the normalness that it was in the city like Corinth. Because in a city like Corinth, it's almost like a city like Vegas, except even Vegas, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas because you don't want to bring that. In Corinth, it's just like what happens in Corinth, everybody's doing it. It doesn't, like you can just tell. Everybody's seeing it. It's public. You can go to the big temple and you can go hire prostitutes when you go to church. I say church. They're worshiping other gods, right? But when, when you go to the temple, you can go hire prostitutes and it's just, there's a, here's a big orgy happening and you can be part of it if you pay the fee. You know, you can serve your alcohol, you can mix a little sex with it. You know, there's brothels all over the city. If you've ever been to, like, Pompeii, you, you see that there's just, like, open brothels. And these brothels, you know, have all this artwork of all these very explicit sex acts that you can hire. And there's different prices for the different things you want. Like, this isn't hidden. This isn't secret. It's all open. And Paul writes a letter to a church that's in this city. And he says, 
I've heard that there's sexual immorality that even the pagans won't do. Do you see why he's drawing emphasis on this? So what is it that the church is doing that even pagans won't do? Well, outside of the likely exaggeration, there are obviously some pagans who would do it, but it's just not acceptable. The first case study that we're going to look at is an issue of incest. He says, a man is sleeping with his father's wife. And this isn't, again, it's not like a secret thing. This is a public letter written from a guy who's out of town. He's heard about it and wrote a letter to be read in the church. Everybody in church knows that this is happening. This is a weird phrase though, right? A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And so some commentators think, well, it's, it's not his mom, otherwise he would have said his mom. It's his, let's say, stepmom or maybe his dad's second wife or something like that. But actually, this language, I, th- I think, comes from a different place. You see, this phrase, father's wife, for, for Paul, he, he's read his Bible. This is the way that the book of Leviticus and the book of Deuteronomy talk about incest. They don't say, don't sleep with your mom. They say, don't sleep with your father's wife. Leviticus 18, it says this, do not have sexual relations with your father's wife. Deuteronomy 22, same thing. Deuteronomy 27, same thing. Every time it uses, so what Paul is doing, I think it's just as likely this guy's sleeping with his mom as his stepmom. He's saying, even pagans won't do the thing you're doing, which means it's pretty bad if in a city like Corinth, they're, they're doing this. So, He draws on the Old Testament scriptures to say this has deadly consequences. If that's my vehicle going off, I'm sorry. Um, I don't know whose that is. Uh, Verse 2, and you, he says, and you're proud of this. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning? Mourning in, in scripture is used in the writers when Israel comes back from exile. Nearly every one of those men goes into mourning. Like Ezra, they come back and it says that he was mourning for the sins of his people. Nehemiah, it says that he was mourning. Daniel, it says that he was mourning. Everyone who comes back, they realize that something has happened sinfully in in the people of God. And it says they just, they lament and they weep and they feel the responsibility for things and the consequences of things that they've done. So he says, you should have gone into mourning and you should have, look at this, put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this. Now, this, this is a hard word for the American church to hear. The, the level of holiness that he's expecting the, the Christian church to have. He says, you're celebrating what you should have sent someone out for. You're embracing it. You're proud of it. How? Why? He says, for my part, even though I'm not physically present, he's writing a letter, he's not actually there. He says, I am with you in spirit. How? He says, as one who is with you present in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who's been doing this. He says, my verdict is in. My judgment is there. Again, this is a hard word for the American church. Talking about judgment, judgment of sin, boundaries, even exclusion. And so he says, when you're assembled, my verdict is in. I'm with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present. He says, hand this man over to Satan. It's a hard word. What does he mean, hand him over to Satan? Hand him over is, he actually uses it a couple of times. Paul, he, he deals with a false teacher in another church, and it says that I handed him over to Satan for his, the destruction of his flesh. Same thing here. 
hand him over to Satan. This metaphor is going to really take full shape, but it's a, it's a Passover metaphor. In ancient Egypt, the people of God, Israel, are enslaved for hundreds of years. And then you remember the ten plagues. God shows up in Moses, and he's going to rescue him. Let my people go. And one plague after the other after the other. And then the final plague is the coming of what he calls the destroyer. That everything that happens outside this home, the destroyer is coming with consequences. Consequences for the things that they've done. They, they've been enslaving and murdering. The so for those outside, there's destruction that's happening. It's just the, the powers of evil are allowed to do their worst, but inside there's protection. He said, that, that same metaphor that he's going to fill out, he says, that this is what the church is now. It's this people who are, are covered by the blood of the Lamb. And then outside those people, the destroyer is coming. But look what he says. I want you to hand them over the, to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. But the purpose, so that, you see the purpose statement, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. There's actually a restoration that he's hoping for. He, he wants to have the sin destroyed, but to have the man survive. He wants the sin, deadly as it is, to be dealt with and then to welcome him back. In 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, the, the Corinthians have dealt with some sin. And he says, you, you did well. You, you put people out, and now, he says, you have to show them mercy and forgiveness and welcome them back in. They're, they actually follow some of his instructions on some of these matters. The goal of, of what he's saying here is holiness. It's actually restoration for the person. So your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little lev yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? So in ancient world, they didn't just, you know, go to the supermarket and buy a loaf of bread. They, they bake bread basically every day. And you would just add a little leaven into the dough, and then with time plus warmth, it rises and expands. And so they're constantly adding just a little bit of leaven, just a little bit of leaven. He says sin functions the same way. Sin has deadly consequences on you and the people around you. It, it spreads. It leavens. It, it's not just a, a personal private thing. Sin has an impact on the people around, on your community. He's, so he says, get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. You see the Passover metaphor. The, the Passover lamb who, whose blood kind of marks off these people. Um, have, you, have you all seen the recent protests for climate change where they like, go into an art studio? And they throw tomato soup on extremely valuable, kind of really honored paintings. Some of you are nodding. There's a couple of, a couple of events recently. One was on a Van Gogh painting that was worth like $80 million. And it's in, in London. They go into this museum, they get tomato soup, and they just spray it all over, all, all over this, this painting. What's interesting is that kind of the, the art studio, they come out and they say, yeah, the, the frame has a little damage, but the painting's fine. The, the, because they couldn't really tell fully that there's this protective layer of glass, 
part of what is so amazing about these Van Gogh paintings is just even seeing like the oil paintings like pop out. You can't just screen print something like that. And, but there's this layer of glass that somehow like fits onto it that's invisible. And this invisible protection made it to where the thing on the other side of it wasn't contaminated by the, the soup that it was spread all over it. Th- that is very much like the Passover metaphor. The, the, the blood of Christ is put on the home of God and the people on the inside, they're not stained and splattered. The, the, the things done by the people inside are not held against them. So he's, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. And so he says, you've got to get the leaven and put it out because it's on the wrong side of the glass right now. It's, it's going to have its impact. The f- Passover feast is the feast of unleavened bread. It's, it's seven-day celebration where we have to get all the leaven out. He says, that's what I need you to do right now. So let us keep the festival, Passover, not, and unleavened bread, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness. He's playing the metaphor out fully, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He says, you've got to get it out. The holiness, the purity of the church matters significantly. And if it matters for the church, it also matters for the individual. You see what he's saying about sin, that sin has consequences in, in a body. And sin has consequences in our body, so he says you have to get the sin out. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world. He says, I wasn't talking about the pagans outside who are immoral, the greedy, the swindlers, the idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. Do you see this list? Um, This is not a random list. This is a list that's taken directly from the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, there are a few matters that are of like capital offense in the book of Deuteronomy. And in ancient Israel's law code, when somebody violated these things, they could be guilty up to death. Some of those is, he changes the word slightly, he makes them a little broader, but he keeps the same categories. It's, it's things like, he says, sexual immorality, that's his broader category. Now this, again, this fits exactly with what he's saying here, that, um, that there, uh, actually he quotes it in the next verse, let me show you this. He says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you, are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside, and so then he has this line. Do you see how it's quoted? Expel the wicked person from among you. This is a line that shows up about a half dozen times in the book of Deuteronomy. Expel the wicked person from among you. What does it apply to? In every case, it applies to these things. These are the major offenses that he says have an impact on the community. You have to get that leaven out. There are some sins that are just deadly. They're deadly to a people, they're deadly to a family, they're deadly to a community, they're deadly to a body. And so do you see how seriously he takes sin? How seriously this is? It has a a deadly consequence. But instead of death, the command is transformed because he doesn't want that person to die, he wants that sin to die. And so he says you have to deliver them out in order for the sin to die so that that person can be restored. Now, there's a lot of people who look at Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and these Old Testament law books, and they think, what do these weird books have to do with us? 
Richard Hayes, he's a Duke professor, wrote a commentary on 1 Corinthians. He says the immoral man at Corinth is probably like this. Either he didn't know or didn't care that Deuteronomy forbids a man to lie with his father's wife. For him, his own experience of freedom in Christ was sufficient to assure him that whatever he was doing was either right or at least of no moral significance. Old covenant commands in the Bible meant nothing to him. Now, my concern is that I think a lot of, I'm not necessarily us, but a lot of people in the American church view the Old Testament in a very similar way. Ah, uh, that's, that's back then. That's old law. That's weird stuff. Who can know? But that's not how Paul's reading this. He's actually drawing specific guidelines and principles from Old Testament laws. Now, not all Old Testament laws. He does away with all laws associated with feast days and food laws and Sabbath keeping. But he still sees a lot of wisdom in and in, in morality around, especially in these categories, things like injustice and sexual immorality and even drunkenness. He uses Deuteronomy's categories and he says these are still taking shape in the, in the church of his time. Now, I, I think this is, this is a hard word, but this is only case study one. Case study two, it moves from injustice straight, from incest straight into injustice. Take a look at chapter six, verse one. He says, if any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? What's happening here? He's, he's just changed topics pretty abruptly. He's moved from a man with his father's wife to people in the church at Corinth are taking one another to court, taking one another to court. He's going to explain why, why this is a problem. He says, don't you know that the Lord's people will judge the world? I, did you know this? That God's people in the church will judge the world? It, it gets better. He says, and if you're to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Did you know that you will judge angels? Most people, when they read 1 Corinthians 6, are like, why are you saying don't you know? It's like, I, this is the first time hearing of this. No one's ever told me this before. We're going to judge angels? I don't even know what that means. We're going to judge the world? This is a pretty common Jewish concept, though. And it comes from the book of Daniel, where the Son of Man is elevated to the judgment seat at the right hand of God. Now, Jesus is the true Son of Man. But when the Son of Man is elevated to the judgment seat, it says that all his saints are elevated with him. Jesus, he actually talks about this pretty often. Matthew 19, he says, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on thrones judging or Luke 22, he says, you eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, but you will sit on thrones judging. Revelation chapter 3, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He says, I am the judge of heaven and earth, and I'm bringing you with me. It's, it's like the hero who's the first over the wall to start conquering the people. He says, I'm going over the wall, but I'm opening the door. All of you get to go in there with me. You get to judge. So if you're the judge of the world and of the cosmos, then why are you, why are you deferring to, to these pagan judges? They don't know. They're not, they don't have the wisdom of God. He says, therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? He says, you're looking to the wrong source of wisdom. I say this to your shame. 
is it possible that there's nobody among you who is wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? The corn people, they loved the idea of wisdom. Um, Marilyn, the word wisdom is Sophia in, in Greek. Her little baby's name is Sophia. So it says, but instead one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. Now, what we don't see here is kind of the implicit wrong and the implicit injustice that's happening. Hayes, again, he says, recent research on the court systems in the Roman Empire has shown that there was a strong systemic bias in favor of the higher status litigants. Basically, in Roman court systems like in Corinth, um, where's Taylor? Is he in here? Okay, he's downstairs. Good. I'm <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there's other attorneys in the room, so I'll have to watch it. Um, there's, there's a strong implicit bias. So in, in the ancient world, most of the court cases are brought by rich people against poor people. And the vast majority of court cases are won by rich people and honorable kind of who you know people versus the other. And so what would happen is that if you had money, you could get your way. And it basically going to court in this system was implicitly just biased. You could leverage and put a few bribes down, and call in a few favors. And some of this still happens, but again, in the ancient world, it's just really documented. This was just all over the place in places like Corinth. So you could cheat, and you could do wrong. And he says, this is injustice, and you're, you're doing this against your own people, and you're doing this in front of other people to see? Yeah. Oh, I say this to your shame. Cicero, he says, there, there were favors, there were bribes, there were power plays, all of these were just so common. And Paul's saying, it shouldn't be common in the church, this level of injustice against one, one another. And so he says, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you've been completely defeated already because the lawsuits were about power plays and putting people down. And he says, this is not the way of Jesus. Why not rather be wronged? Do you remember what Jesus said about lawsuits? He says, if somebody wants your clothes, you should just throw in the tunic too. If somebody gets one cheek, give them the other also. He says, if it's about being wronged, then wrong me. And then he actually lived that out as he dies with his tunic given away and dispersed among the unbelieving pagan people. This is the way of Jesus. He says, why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong. And you do this to your brothers and sisters. He reminds them that they're family. You cheat and you, you, so the first problem was incest, but now he's moved into really like a financial and honor system level of injustice. But then his resolution comes in, in verses 9 through 11. He says, don't you know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? That word wrongdoers is, it's just the word for unjust people. Don't you know that the unjust will not inherit the kingdom of God? Uh, it could be translated unrighteous. It's the same idea. But twice, do you see it? You will not inherit. You will not inherit. There, there's a really important reminder here that the kingdom of God is not something you earn. It's not something you buy. Simon the Sorcerer, he tried to do that. It's not something that, that you get by birthright. It's, it's something you inherit because of the grace of Jesus. It's something that is given to you because of who you know. He says, in a court system where everything is given to you based on who you know, he says, you need to remember who you really know and who knows you. And the inheritance, you're trading this, this trivial court case 
for an eternal inheritance. You're giving that up? He says, don't, don't make that mistake. So neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men. Now, this is a, a weird phrase. And if you have a different translation, there's a lot of different ways of saying this. It's actually two different ideas. The first idea is it's just the word in Greek for soft. Uh, it, could, it could refer to a lot of things um, and it, at the risk of being graphic. It could refer to, like the King James calls it effeminate. But that, that's not a helpful translation because it makes it sound like it's sinful to be the, like, the opposite of John Wayne or something. Right, and that is not at all what is in view here. It's not saying that if you can't throw a football and you're in touch with your feelings, you can't inherit the kingdom of God. No, that not that. But this word was often used to refer to people who were men who presented as women. And he says that that doesn't fit here. But it could also was a word that could be used to be the. I'm gonna. Um, I'm not gonna talk much about this, but the passive partner in a gay sexual relationship? Okay. And, and then there's the second word, which is, it's just, it's just a word that actually it's drawn straight from Leviticus, Leviticus 18. We're in the book of Leviticus that he was drawing on the previous chapter, and now he's drawing on it, and it says, basically, a man, a man cannot lie with or bed with another man. And so he, he puts the word man and bed together, and so it, it's just the word men bedders. NIV's translation's fine here. Men who have sex with men. He said, don't you know? Now, the reason I'm, I'm kind of focusing on these words is because a lot of people today say there's a lot of confusion around what this means. And, and there are a variety of ways of translating these words. But there's no confusion on what this means. Um, like this, people who practice this. Now, practice is different than an inclination, right? Practice is different than a behavior. Uh, than a, a desire. He's, he's not saying that it is wrong to have desires like this. Actually, that is expected. You should have, expect to have sinful desires. Every, every person has sinful desires. You should expect those. You can even expect to have some inclinations, some kind of abiding desires. But when you begin doing those and embracing those, he says there, there's no inheritance in the kingdom. But there's a weird thing that happens when Americans read this, and I run the risk of doing it today. You just start focusing on that one, when actually that one is found within a larger description. So let me kind of widen it out. He says, the sexually immoral, which is actually a very broad word, it's the, the word porneia. It's where we get our word porn, right? And certainly porn would kind of fall in this. But again, it's not about desiring or even having an inclination. It's about the, the embrace and the, the practice of these things. Idolaters, he says thieves and greedy, those are actually kind of paired together. And this is really what he's talking about. He says, you're practicing injustice. In the book of Deuteronomy, it was about even like slave traders, they're condemned to death. They're, they're in this category for him of thieves and greedy. Um, some people put swindlers in, in the translation. Basically, any cruel business practice that you're interested in your financial profits to the exclusion of others, he says, that's not the way of the kingdom. You don't belong in here either if that's what you're embracing. Nor drunkards. In the book of Deuteronomy, 
the rebellious son, the drunken son, he says he's cursed. You have to get him out of the, out of the people. And then slanderers and swindlers. So there, there's two risks. There's one risk of just focusing in on one. And then there's another risk of just ignoring the one. And I'm not really interested in either one of those things. Paul has a wide angle camera and he's taking a snapshot of the sins that are affecting his church in Corinth, the church that he knows and cares about, that, that he's been watering, that, that he planted. And so for us, our, our sins are, are different. Um, it's it, interesting as a preacher, sometimes um, in, the, in the past, I've gotten a lot of pressure to talk about different things from people. And it's like, kind of like Michael said in the Confession of Sin Time, it's always the things that other people are struggling with. <laughs> Everybody wants you to talk about their sin or that other person's sin instead of, you know, that person's sin. And my, I think my calling as a, a minister and as a preacher is actually to try to discern what sins are impacting our community and then to find scriptural discernment. Um, incest, I don't think, is rampant here. Um, Injustice in the criminal court system. But man, there's so much sexual immorality. And just addiction. There's so much brokenness. For me, he, he doesn't dip into some of these other areas, but the way that anger can be leveraged as a weapon in families. and What he's saying is that these things have a real impact on us and the people around us. It hurts. It causes damage. Now, um, we have one more case study, so let me keep, keep moving somewhat. He says, that's what some of you were, but you were washed, sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The church in Corinth had people who all came from that life, but something happened. It's really cool that we get to talk about Craig because he says, you were washed. He's recalling their baptism moment. And the baptism moment is where all of this comes to be true, that you are sanctified, that you are made holy, you're set apart now, you're unique and distinct from the world, and you are justified. He says, I'm, I'm making you just and righteous before God. If you're worried about injustice against other people, he says, this is the, the justice-making one. He, it happened for you. It happened in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Incest and justice, the third case study, is what he calls immorality. I have to move quickly here because I want to make some reflections, make it a little more practical. He says, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy them both. Do you see how he's quoting them back at them? You know, your translations will show this in a variety of ways. But at the heart of what they're saying is that I have... Most translations say, I have the freedom. I have the right. Whew. If we thought the previous two sections were an affront to American values, I think this one cuts to the heart of it. You say, I have the right. But he says, that's, that's not actually true. You, you say that appetite, just give me what I want. I, I desire it. It tastes good. Just feed me, feed me, feed me. And who cares? My body's going to be destroyed anyway. He says, no, 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 no. And then he gives a threefold argument for why the body matters. He says, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, 
God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you see the first argument? Is that your body is an eternal, eternal being. We will not be raised as mere souls without bodies. We will be raised with bodies. What you do in your body matters. That's what Paul's saying. It matters now, and it matters in the future. In the future, you will be raised, so watch what you do with your body. Don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? He says the first part is about the future, that you will be raised, your body matters. The second part is about the past. Your body is not yours, you've been bought. You've become a part of Christ's body. Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Don't you know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? Notice how Paul thinks of sex. It's not just an appetite. He says, for him, sex is a spiritual union, not just a physical union. Sex is not just an appetite. Sex is it's a, a spiritual union that happens. When you become one flesh with someone, he says, he says you become one flesh with her. He says, that's, that's Genesis 2. The two shall become one flesh, but whoever is united with the Lord. He says, you are united with the Lord, and then you start uniting with these prostitutes in the temples, and you start uniting with these other people outside your marriage, and he says, you're acting like it's just physical. It's not. It's never just physical. And so he says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, the futures that you will be raised, the past that you've been bought, and so he says, in the present, you have to recognize that your body is a temple. You are the house of God, oikos. That, that's what that word means. You are the house of God's spirit. He's in you. Now, he's already said in chapter three that he's in us, but now he's saying to individual people, it matters because of your sexual relationships. You are not your own. You were bought at a price, therefore honor God with your bodies. You were not your own. Past, present, future, he says all of it means that your body matters and what you do in your body matters. Sin matters because it contaminates something that's going to live into the future. Sin matters because you've been joined to Christ. Sin matters because the Spirit is with you. Sin matters significantly to Paul. So now let me just put a few threads together here and just offer two reminders that I see in these three case studies. These three studies, incest, injustice, and immorality, it shows us that we have to remember what sin is and what it does. He says, sin is a deadly force that kills. The wages of sin is death, and it doesn't just affect us, it affects the people around us. Sin cannot be taken lightly because it spreads, he says. It leavens the others. Sin, he says, is incompatible with Christ and with the Holy Spirit, and you have been joined to Christ, and you are a house of the Holy Spirit. Sin cannot live with those, with those beings. It, we have to remember what sin is. Sin is a deadly force for evil in our lives. He says, make mo no mistake, you cannot reduce the consequences of sin. The second thing we have to remember, we have to remember what sin is, we have to remember who you are. In the middle of all of these descriptions of how severe sin is, he keeps reminding them that's what you were, but it's not anymore. Now you were washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. That is not who you are anymore. Now you are a temple. We are not our own. We've been bought and redeemed by the blood of Jesus. He says, we are, this is, this is who we are, identity, 
And so then it affects our behavior. This is who we are. Our identity in Christ is that we are justified, not unjust people. That we have been made clean and been washed away in our baptism. And so we are, we are not people of immorality. All of that has been taken care of. Both of these realities have to be there all the time, I think. Again, there's two risks here. I, I'm, I'm, I was concerned about this this week. Because some of you, I, I'm concerned, will hear a sermon like today. And you will think, oh yes, this confirms everything I've always thought about God. That he is a tyrant who cannot be satisfied. That he cannot forgive me because I still struggle with sin. That I am just too bad to, and I'm still on the outside. Guys, that is not who God is. And that is not how God views you if you're in Christ. In Christ, you are who he says you are. In Christ, you are on the inside of that frame where that soup can't splatter. You are on the other side of the blood of the Passover lamb. But the other danger is that we will fail to take responsibility for the things that we've done. We will minimize our part and the consequences of what we've done, the death that we have introduced into this world. There's, there's some, it's almost like we, instead of viewing God as a tyrant, we view God as where he just lets us define right and wrong for ourselves. I have the right after all. I have the freedom after all. And I don't think either one of those views is true. Instead, what we see is that God gets to define right and wrong and God gets to define you. So here's a, a quote from uh, an old Puritan guy. This is like three, 400 years old named John Owen. John Owen wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin. What mortification means is where you put something to death. It comes from Romans chapter 8, verse 13. He says, you have to put to death the works of the flesh. But he has this really famous line. He says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. And actually, this isn't quite far enough because it will also kill the people around you. It will bring devastation and ruin at the people that you love. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. You see, we have to have both pieces of remembering what sin is and remembering who we are. All right, so how do we kill sin? How do we kill sin? How do we bring it into the presence of God? Let me, let me introduce this. I would really recommend, if, you, if you're taking notes still, uh, or if you're not, just kind of pull out that, that sheet and just write these on the back. This can be a process that you do on your own, but this is also a process that's done in the context of what we call freedom prayer. Freedom Prayer is a new ministry that will, uh, we've already kind of soft launched, but we'll train in a couple of weeks, and then we'll launch it on a larger scale. It's a time where you get to encounter the Lord and kind of listen to His voice. And here's the process for dealing with sin. The first, the first piece of getting over the sin is to ask the Lord to reveal it, to shine His light, to expose it. Um, Jesus says, don't you know it's actually better for me to leave? Because if I leave, then I get to send the helper, the Holy Spirit. And then when he comes, he says, he's going to convict the world of sin. Part of what the Spirit does when we encounter him is he shows us where we have sin. Now, the Spirit can also show us where we have wounds. The Spirit can also show us where we have those vines that entangle us. But the Spirit can show us where we have sin, where we are, are prisoners to the things that we've done. Um, and... But part of revealing, it's, it's not just letting the Lord show it to you, but then it's you revealing it to others. This is the word confession. Confession kind of runs through the, the scriptures. The book of Proverbs says, the one who conceals, 
conceals, hides his sin, doesn't prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces, he finds mercy. James chapter 5, he says, confess your sins to one another, pray for one another that you may be healed. He says, you have to get outside of it, you have to actually say it. Psalm 32, it's a psalm that describes the wasting away effect, how it crushes us to hold on to sin. But he says, then I acknowledge my sin to you and didn't cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. When we uncover it, that's when the light has the power to heal it. You have to name it to tame it. And a lot of people are really concerned about confessing because confession is really only effective if it can be done in the context of trust and safety. Jen Barnett, who leads the Freedom Prayer Ministry, she says, when we can be vulnerable in safe environments, it can open a door to the community that we crave. When we open our mouths in front of others, we not only get fellowship, but we get purification. So it's, it's revealing the sin to you, and then you revealing the sin to others that has the power to begin breaking it. I, I think this is one of the beautiful things of freedom prayer. The freedom prayer allows the Lord to reveal to you sin. And it allows you the context of saying it out loud in the context of confidentiality, where there actually can be safety, where you can get it outside of you to tap into that power of naming it to tame it. But it, it also lets the Lord speak into it and kind of reveal the roots and the footholds and some of the other things. The second piece after revealing the sin is to repent and renounce. This step is really about feeling its weight and taking responsibility. Rather than kind of deferring and shifting and, and pointing at others, repentance really is about acknowledging your role and the consequences of what you've done. Real remorse, Jen says, is not simple remorse and self-pity. It's seen that we have hurt another deeply or have debased and hurt ourselves. It's fully facing our sin and turning to God without excuse. It's being willing to bear the consequences and to make restitution. That's repentance. It's making things right. Repentance is where you feel the conviction and you agree with the conviction of sin. And then you turn to the Lord and say, I am helpless to deal with this. Can you help me? Sin then, at the moment of repentance, prompts Christ's love for us and towards us. Sin, when it's confessed and, and taken responsibility for it, it has a way of activating Christ's compassion. So it's not that he will destroy you if you acknowledge it. It's that he will rescue if you acknowledge it, and he will destroy the sin. The third piece, revealing the sin and sharing it, and then repenting of sin and renouncing it, is to receive forgiveness. If sin is your problem, Christ has dealt with it. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If sin is your problem separating you from God, Jesus has already taken care of it. There is no more problem. Now the only problem is coming and receiving the gift of forgiveness. Forgiveness is not saying, ah, it's no big deal. Forgiveness is not saying, ah, it's all right. Forgiveness is saying that Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for me. Jesus Christ has he's taken on and absorbed in himself the pain. It's not dismissing the pain. It's seen that you've been rescued from the pain. But how important it is to hear the message of forgiveness. Again, this can happen in the context of a prayer time.
You can hear from the Lord, his affirming words and his grace and mercy, but then you can also hear from other people around you who voice this message. There's this really striking passage in 1 John chapter 3 where, where John says, this is how we know that we're truly his, and you can have assurance. He says, whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts because he knows everything. If our hearts condemn us, do you have that inner voice of condemnation that holds on to your sin? He says, our hearts condemn us, but God is greater than our hearts. He can speak a, a message of forgiveness in the face of our inner critics and our accusers, that inner voice he, that can remind us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He says, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Freedom prayer, I keep pitching it. But it's because I want you to be part of the Freedom Prayer team, and I want you to experience the goodness of God in his presence. It practices revealing. It practices repentance. And then it hears from the Lord that our hearts condemn us, but that he's greater than our hearts. All right, let's close here. Paul says, when it comes to sin, that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us, therefore, celebrate. Christ has died so that the accusations and condemnations of the accuser do not fall on you. And Christ has died so that when sin can be get gotten out of you and put outside, he will come and destroy it. Not you, but your sin. Now this, of course, is what we see in the parable of the prodigal son. You remember this one. We've talked a lot about the prodigal parables in Luke 15. How sometimes wounding happens to us and it's something that's lost. Sometimes wandering has happened to us and it's, we get entangled. But the younger son who runs away and he wastes his father's wealth on prodigal living. Do you remember what it says that he came to himself? And he realizes that in his father's house... That he, if only he were a slave, he'd be better off than he is now. And so he prepares his I'm sorry speech. And he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And then it says he arose and he went to his father. And when he went to his father, his father was looking for him. And he came running to him. And he starts his I'm sorry speech. And he can't even get through it before the father embraces him and kisses him. And gives him a robe, gives him the sandals, and gives him a ring and says, Kill the fatted calf. My son who is lost is found. My son who is dead is alive. This, this is the message of sinners, not mistakers. This is the message for sinners, that Christ Jesus is merciful to sinners and he has atoned for us. Come home, he says to them. I want to offer a blessing from Psalm 51. Would you stand up? And then we'll be done. I'm just going to pray these words and then um, send you out. Have mercy on us, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out our transgressions. Wash us thoroughly from our iniquity and cleanse us from our sin. For we know our transgressions and our sin is always before you. Purge us with hyssop and we shall be clean. Wash us, and we shall be whiter than snow. Let us hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. 
Hide your face from our sins. Blot out all our iniquities. Create in us a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within us. Cast us not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from us. Restore to us the joy of your salvation, and uphold us with a willing spirit. In the name of Christ, we plead and beg. Amen.